Well, all right. It's good to see you here today. It's an honor to be in this teaching podium and to uh, stand where Dr. Stan has stood. Uh, he's one of the things that attracted us, to be quite blunt, to your class. Uh, we, we, you know, do like most people, we shopped around and went to a couple other classes and, nah, not there. Uh, no, no, they're too cliquish. They didn't act like they wanted us. You know, and, and then someone, I forget who it was, said that you kind of were one of the mentors of Dr. Chuck, our, our pastor. And I said, okay, if he could help Chuck Swindoll, maybe he'll be able to help me. You know, and, and so uh, we came and become part of the class and have never regretted it. I want you to continue getting better, though. You need to get well. Okay, because I'm not done listening to you. You still got work to do on me. Okay, and I need you. Okay. I was trying to think of something witty to say when I got up here, and, and all the things I thought I would say, my wife shot down. You know, you used to, when we were younger, she would tell me after I would teach or preach. Now she's gotten to where she does it before. You know, I was going to tell you that uh, I'm a recovering Southern Baptist and that's why I needed Dr. Stan, but she said don't say that, so I'm not going to say it. <laughs> All right. See, I didn't say it. Okay. All right. Uh, I've been trying to think about what in the world to uh, tell you about who I am, and then he took care of it all for me. So see, I, I'm just ready to go now, ready to teach. Uh, you have a handout that you can take notes on as you want to, or you can just listen and let it absorb into your brain that way, however you want to do it. But we're going to be looking together at the book of Ephesians today, and uh, I have a Bible with me. You, you look at this and you're thinking, oh, he doesn't have a Bible. I do. I have 20 Bibles in here, uh, but I'm only going to use one today. And uh, if you'll turn in your Bibles by click or by turning pages, whichever works best for you, and uh, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1 as we begin a four-week series on the first two chapters of Ephesians. I started preaching when I was 13 and pastoring when I was 18, and one of my earlier uh, mentors in early college days said, you can't be a master of everything, so master a couple of things. And you know, he said, master a certain doctrine or master at certain books, and so I chose to kind of master the book of Romans and the book of Ephesians because they are the two most systematic theological-oriented books or theological explanation books in the New Testament. Uh, Ephesians and Romans aren't written to explain problems away necessarily, but are written to teach what the church needed to know. It's interesting that in Ephesians, Paul is trying to teach us what we need to know about the nature of who we are and the nature of what the church is. And in chapter 1, if you could go to the original Greek, and many of you could, you will find that there's about 11 instances of the phrase or the equivalent of the phrase, in Christ. And in fact, some commentaries have taken through the years the theme of the book of Ephesians to be in Christ. And so we're going to be looking together at Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, on the PowerPoint that they're going to start for me now, notice how suave and debonair it was with that. And uh, next slide, please. This is who I am. I finally figured out who to say who I am. Uh, I am Eliana, Titus, and Marias Papa. And that basically says it all. Now, 
I'm going to put a plug in for good news clubs at Comstock. Those kids go to Comstock and the two, uh, the older one and the middle one, the boy, go to the good news club. So y'all got to find volunteers to take care of that because uh, I need my grandkids taken care of as they're a part of that at Comstock. And they come home talking about it all the time. So I'm telling you, it does make an impact and I'm so glad our class does that. All right, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul starts out by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we go any further into the main text I want to look at today, I would just say that that's a traditional introduction, as you all are aware of. But I think it's interesting to note how it is, it is just pregnant with giving birth of theological thinking. Uh, the phrase, just to draw conclusion uh, an example of that, the phrase grace to you and peace. I don't think that those are put in hop, uh, you know, helter-skelter order. Those are specifically led by the Holy Spirit through the process of inspiration to give an understanding of something. How do you have peace with God? You can't unless you first of all experience the grace of God. And so we start out from the very beginning of his writing in this book to understand that we're about to learn about how we can be at peace with God and be who we are in God. And it starts out by the receiving of his grace and the peace that comes from who we are in Christ with his grace. Now that theme of in Christ is going to continue to develop as you look at the book of Ephesians. Now let's move on to the next verses. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us with the Holy in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now I read all verses 13 through 14 at one setting, at one format, because that's how Paul wrote it. It is one sentence. Now you remember back to grammar school 
in our day, they actually taught us English grammar. I'm not sure what they do today, but we actually had to learn English grammar. Now, how many of you remember, now this of course is back in the olden days, so most of you should be able to remember it unless you've started forgetting things from way back then. And so, in, in grammar school when we were taught English, we were taught something called sentence structure. And remember how we used to have to go to the chalkboard? Yeah, we had chalk back then. We didn't have dry erase markers. And we had to draw sentence what? Diagrams. I knew someone would know that. And I hope it's someone not just an English teacher. So anyway, but uh, diagramming sentences. Now, I always thought that was going to be wasted information on me until I got to seminary, or really until I got to college and started taking Greek New Testament. Boy, was I glad they taught sentence structure in, in English before I got to Greek. Because so much of what we had to look at to be able to understand the structure and the syntax and so forth was understanding the sentence structure in the Greek text. There's one subject and one verb to a sentence, right? Now we could spend a lot of time to figure out what the verb and the, and the subject is to this one sentence. But rather than do that, I want us to go back even further to the basic grammatical rule of English. And therefore, grammar in sentences. Because the same kind of rule in English grammar applies to Greek grammar that I'm about to share. How many single thoughts are you supposed to have for one sentence? One. Now, I love word studies. I love to dig in and get the full meaning of a word. And I love the syntax of how the words fit together and all that. That's fun. That's fun. But the trouble with text-driven preaching, which is what I'm committed to, text-driven teaching, is that I must let the text drive what I'm going to understand about God's Word. Not the individual words, but the text. The text has to drive our thinking. So if we're going to really analyze this passage today, we have to analyze it from the context of one single major thought. And that one single major thought that just flows from these verses, verses 13, uh, 3 through 14, is the work of God the Trinity in our salvation. This entire passage is broken down according to explaining all of the elements and the ins and outs of the work of God in our salvation. Oftentimes you and I will simplistically yet truthfully say that the work of God in our salvation is Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And there's no truer statement than that statement there. But Paul takes that thought and expands it into the complex sentence that we have before us now. Now, I'll be honest with you, Greek scholars will tell you that this is one of the most horrendously, grotesquely hard to gather information and understand structure of any Greek sentence in the New Testament. Uh, they don't like it, in other words, because it is a really difficult 
grammatical structure to put together. Well, my thoughts on that is tough. Because God said it, I'm going to believe it, and I'm going to say, since God said it, what does it mean? I think that's a key rule in biblical interpretation is not why did God say this, and not even if God said this, but a key rule in biblical interpretation is since God said this, what does it mean? And so that's what we want to do this morning in the time we've got together. And, and, and I have to quit by one, right? Isn't that what I understand? <laughs> no, my wife will be leaving before then. She's already told me before I got up, they don't go too long. So anyway, so uh, we'll quit by 12, I promise, because we have to beat the Methodist out to the ca cafeterias, you know. Um, Okay, so in the work of God in our salvation in Ephesians 1, you see it's one complete sentence and you see the theme. I want you to keep that in your mind as we now break that theme down into these verses. First of all, we're going to see, as we reflect back on the reading of this entire passage together, one thing I think I want you to keep in your mind is there's a defining of time periods in the work of the Trinity. When we look at the work of the Father, the time period is past, in the past. When we look at the work of the Son, it's in the present and the past, both past and present. And when we look at the work of the Holy Spirit, it is the present and the future. And so there is a little overlap, but there's a definite past, present, future. I don't know about you, but that to me gives me great comfort. It means that when I come to God for salvation, my salvation is not like the old feather pillow mattresses that I had at my grandpa's house when I'd go visit. Some of you all are not old enough, I know. Most of you are not old enough to remember feather mattresses, right? You know, you don't have any idea what that means. But let me tell you about it. When I went to my grandpa's house for Christmas every year, I'd have to go up into the attic of his little house in Leesburg, Missouri, and there would be like eight or nine beds and mattresses up there in that attic. Now, of course, he had an outdoor privy which meant there were these little contraptions, pot things that were at the end of every bed too, which you didn't want to knock over. So, you know, anyway, so, so I remember getting up there and I'd get into the mattress and I'd get on the side, nice and solid, you know, and then I'd swing my feet over and I'd lay down and all of a sudden I'd roll. Now that feather bed was firm on the end Firm on the other end and firm on the sides, but loosey-goosey in the middle. Our salvation is not like that. Because God works salvation into past, present, and future, wherever we are in our lives, wherever we are in the work of God in our salvation, we are firm. We are solid. We can count on God. We've talked about the sovereignty of God sometimes, and one thing we're about to see is the great sovereignty of God in our work of salvation. And that sovereignty is important, but that sovereignty basically, I'm, I'm trying to get application thoughts for you, and in my mind as well, rather than controversy. I realize the passage I've chosen to teach on today, if I wanted to, 
I could make everybody in this room mad depending on what position you have. I could cover them all and we'd all get upset. Because our culture is divided when it comes to church and theological life with different systems of thought instead of biblical text-driven thinking, in my opinion. So I used a couple of power words today already, didn't I? Remember one, one of them, I bet you can tell me what it is. Predestined. What in the world does predestination mean? Oh, one guy says, well, it means we're going to be marked out ahead of time according to God's plan of whether we'll go to heaven or hell. Some truth to that in some context. One guy would say, well, that can't be correct because other verses say whosoever will and meaning we can't act like judgmental and act like only certain people are going to go to heaven and hell. Well, God did say whosoever will, but I think the context is a little different on that too. Can I ask you maybe, regardless of whether you were raised in certain systems of thinking or taught to think in certain systems of thinking, to step back for a minute and think with me biblically? What does the text say about the concepts we're going to see in these verses? For example... When we talk about the work of God the Father, which is verses 3 through 6, those verses, verses 3 through 6, deal with the work of God the Father. And it is greatly involved in the past. And it is greatly involved in the concept of election. I want you to think with me about what that means. Now we're going to look at verse 4. It says, as even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us. Okay, now we use two big election words there. So uh, some of the, the, the Calvinist branches of systematic thinking had your ears perk up and say, oh, good, good, good. Others of you that weren't raised and trained in the Calvinistic ways of thinking, you, you got confused and said, oh my goodness, what is he going to get into? And I'm just going to wait in the middle of it and say some things. He chose us where? What is the sphere of the choosing? He chose us in him. That doesn't sound like God is upstairs in heaven before the foundation of the world with some secretary angels saying on the great list of all that will be born someday, uh, that's list A, that's list B, A, B, A, B. Does that sound like that to you? No, it says that before the foundation of the world, he chose us in him, and the him there is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just a simple boy from East Texas. I know I look swab and debonair and all that stuff. But as a simple boy from East Texas, the way I try to make sense of this is this. Anybody who comes to Jesus accepting Him as their Savior because He died on the cross for their sins, that faith that turning from themselves and turning to Christ allows them to be chosen by God for all that God has chosen the elect to have. So, 
the answer I have, if someone says, are you the elect? I said, yes, because I accepted Jesus as my Savior. And then God said, you're mine. You're the elect. Now, did God arrange things for me to come to that point? I don't argue that. Did God allow his Holy Spirit to draw me and his grace to bring me to that point? I do not argue that at all. But that's, to me, not the point of application for life. The application of life is that when I come to Jesus as my Savior, when you came to Jesus and accepted him as your Savior, you became God's child. According to God's plan and according to his purposes. And we're about to see all that that entails. And all the security that comes from knowing that you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So, it's important that you be in Christ. It's important that you've accepted Christ as your Savior because it is the door opener for everything. In my business life, because I haven't retired yet, I am in financial services. And one of the things I handle is Medicare supplement insurance. And I had a client tell me the other day as, as she talked about her experience with cancer and so forth. And she, she's talked about how, you know, I just walk up to that doctor's desk or that hospital's desk and I put that Mutual of Omaha card down and it's just like a black American Express card. Whatever I needed, they took care of. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, most of the time, my clients don't say things like that. It's more like, how in the world could you do that to me? But anyway, you know, for her, it was kind of like the Black American Express card. Whatever I want, I get. And that's kind of what it is when I come to Christ. Everything that is of God for me becomes mine because I have Christ. Now, Jesus did this because it was the Father's will. Now, I want you to look what else he did. In verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, I do wish that the translations would become a little bit more gender inclusive so that you ladies would know the truth that God knows, that he adopted us as sons and daughters. That's really the meaning of the Greek text there. It is not gender exclusive. Now, there are lots of places in the Bible where gender exclusive language is used. So that there's definitely, it refers to men. But many times, when the Bible talks about brothers in the New Testament, it refers to the sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ. The brothers and sisters in Christ. So you see, he made us with adoption to himself. And why did he do that? According to the riches, uh, no, according to his glorious grace, his plan, his purposes. So let me ask you this. Have you ever known someone that adopted a child? Yeah, you have. We all have. Maybe some of you have adopted children. The interesting thing about adoption in our culture is it comes with all of these what-ifs. Adoption comes with all these legal loopholes. It's created by lawyers. What do you expect? And, and these legal loopholes allow certain things to be undone at some time if they want it to be and not undone. And even when you do something that's iron solid rock, 
later on in life someone can get another lawyer and go and undo it. So our adoption laws are, I like to say, they're a little loosey-goosey. They're, they're not really solid, solid where you can kind of depend on them and never worry. But the adoption laws of the Roman Empire, out of which this word is coming and how this is used, were totally different. Adoption in the New Testament world was something that was so legally binding you could not be disinherited. Now, I could disinherit my child, both of them, I have two. I could disinherit both of them or any one of them. They're not in my will at all. They're done for. But if they were adopted in the Roman Empire days, when this was written, the understanding of the word adoption then, I couldn't disinherit them. Once you're adopted, you're in all the time. Now, that's the kind of security that we have because of the work of God in arranging for our work in salvation. So, so the first aspect we've been looking at is the work of God the Father. It deals with the past. It deals primarily with His choosing, His electing, His designing a plan and a purpose to make it happen. Now, the next part we want to look at starts in verse 3, I mean verse 7, excuse me, where we're going to begin to look at the work of God the Son. Now here, it deals with the present, and it deals with redemption. Let's reread those verses for a second, alright? Start with me in verse 7. In Him, referring to Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Now, the word redemption there is a powerful word. It means to be purchased or bought back from a market as in a slave market. It has a broad meaning to be purchased or bought back from any market or any person but we oftentimes hear uh, pastors and preachers emphasize the slave market because that preaches good. Because then you can start talking about the slave market as sin and Jesus redeeming you out of it. The concept of redemption is a big word. This is one of the biggest words in all of the New Testament. It's one of the biggest words in your life as a Christian. In fact, the word redemption has seven different words that are used in the Greek New Testament to describe it. All of them carry the basic meaning of buying us back from something that holds us in slavery or holds us in ownership. The work of Jesus was to set us free from being owned by the world being owned by the power and manipulation of the enemy, and being enslaved by our guilt to our sin. Set free from those things so that we can walk in the salvation that God arranges. So Jesus brought about through his work, which was a work of dying on the cross and shedding his blood, so that we could be purchased out of those things that held us captive and be set free in the plan and purpose of God the Father. Sometimes you may hear someone say that God plans it, the Son provided it, and then in a minute we'll see the Holy Spirit enables it and makes it come to pass. 
Now, when you think about these things, about work of God the Son, we have redemption, which is forgiveness, but notice that phrase that we find in that verse 7, according to the riches of His grace. Again, remember that little cutesy thing I said at the very first, in the first three verses? That grace, then comes peace. You see, grace is what it's all about. I'll be quite honest with you. In our journey to find a, a church home after I retired from uh, pastoring, our journey to find a church home was going to be a hard one for us. Because I had had my fill of legalistic, tradition-bound, systematic-thinking church life. I just To tell me I was going to go sit down with a group of people who were consumed with do's and don'ts, wrongs and rights, I, I just thought maybe I'd kill myself. Wasn't going to do it. To be quite honest, one of the reasons why I, I was drawn here to this church was because of the knowledge and the knowingness and the infusing, infusing of the truth in all is about this church from the top down with the concept of grace. You may not know it, but you are a grace-bound church, which means you're a grace-freedom church because grace frees you, doesn't bind you. Grace is an interesting word when it talks here about the riches of His grace. And I'm watching my watch, I promise. We'll get out in time. Um, sometimes when, when I was younger and being raised up, we had all these little cliches, you know. Young preachers develop cliches when they preach. It makes us sound like we know what we're doing. You know, and so uh, mercy is getting what you don't deserve. Okay. And not being given what you do deserve. Okay. All right. And I love the one for grace. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. You know, it's a little, you know, it's acrostic you right now. You ever really study what the Bible says about grace? You find that that is a true to a point statement, but it is a totally inadequate understanding of the use of the word and meaning of grace in the Greek New Testament. If I were to assess grace in a more comprehensive way today, I would state it this way, that grace is the enabling power of God to let you and I do or become what we can't do or become on our own. It doesn't just stay at salvation when I begin. I read a, a British author, the name is slipping my mind now. I'll think of it once I'm done. But, but he changed my life. He just totally transformed my life. That's why I'm 63, almost 64, because I'm not remembering those kind of things now, see. And, and he wrote two little booklets. They weren't even full books. They were just little booklets. I picked them up one day at Mardell's and read them years ago and uh, they changed my mind completely in thinking on some things and clarified some things. The first book was called Becoming a Christian and the next book was called Being a Christian. And it really caused me to understand and see some things that I had never put together that, that there is two stages, as it were, to Christianity. There is the stage of becoming a Christian, and then there is the stage of 
being a Christian. There is the conversion stage and there is the discipleship stage. And they're distinctly different yet tied together. And I came to understand the thing that ties them both together is, you got it, grace. I can't save myself. It takes God's enabling power through the work of Christ on the cross to make it happen. That's why Paul says in uh, two weeks from now, for by grace are you saved through faith. I can't save myself. It took grace to make it happen. God's enabling power to do for me what I could not do for myself. Grace. Now Paul goes on to say in other places that I can't live the Christian life on my own. It takes the grace of God to let me live. That, see, that's why a Christian discipleship mindset that is a list of do's and don'ts will never work, but will always lead to disillusionment and unfulfillment and possibly abandoning the faith because it just can't work because it's not based on grace. In fact, I think the whole premise of the book of Galatians is built around that concept. I think if you were to analyze the text-driven interpretation of the book of Galatians, it would revolve around the first part of the book declaring to the confused, mixed-up church at Galatia the only real way to be a Christian, to become a Christian. And then the second part of the book of Galatians would deal with the only real way to live the Christian life. Now in that book of Galatians you find some interesting passages like I am crucified with Christ. Kind of I join in union with Christ in what he did for me. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me because he died for my sins. So you see, grace is powerful. Grace is essential. And notice also that we are given redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, not out of the riches of his grace, but according to the riches of his grace. Now, you understand what the difference between out of the riches of grace, according to the riches of grace, versus out of the riches of grace? Out of the riches of the grace carries with it uh, maybe there's some determinations of how much you can be given. According to carries with it the concept in the original languages of there is no limit to what you may need from the riches of grace. So you see some of us might have lives that would require more of God's grace to enable us to come to Him because our lives are a real mess. Someone else may have not quite as much of a mess, but yet God's grace enables us to come to Him. Now, you know, when I was seven years old, I became a Christian. I prayed to receive Christ as my Savior and put my trust and belief in Him. Now, I hadn't done a whole lot by the time I was seven years old. I lied a couple of times when mom said, did you get your homework done, you know, and I, I, I did steal a piece of candy from the, the drugstore in um, Ferris, Texas, Will's Drugstore down in Ferris, Texas. I did do that, 
Of course, when my father saw me eating it, he asked where I got it, and I said, oh, I took it from Will's. And he said, well, why? I figured he'd give it to me, so I just took it. He said, oh, no, no, no. And then he marches me down. We walked three blocks from the church parsonage where we lived and, and went in there, and I apologized and paid for the piece of candy I took. So I guess I could talk about big things like that. Then I've got people I've known through my life and my ministry through the years who came out of great lives of crime, who had committed great crimes against people and against themselves. But you know, whatever we needed, whatever I needed at the age of seven, and whatever need uh, this, this person I'm thinking in my mind about needed at, at his age of age 35, According to God's grace, it was there for us. Whatever we needed to become what God wants us to be, it's there. So God's grace is powerful. God's grace is essential. Never, 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 never. I'm going to be Church Willian for a minute. Never, never, never deny the grace of God's power. No way around it. All right, now let's think about some things here. I want to move on because our time's getting away. To look at the work of God, the Holy Spirit, in verses 13 through 14, it basically deals with the future, with protection, with security in these concepts. Notice, if you would, at verse 13. Um, in Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our, your salvation, and believed in Him, all in Him is in Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Powerful words here. We were marked out, in a sense. We were sealed. Now that seal carries with it the concept of not just sealing us but giving us the guarantee of our inheritance. Now the word guarantee of our inheritance some translations will use the word pledge. He became the pledge. It's a mortgage term. Years ago to help pay my way as a pastor in churches that couldn't afford to pay a full-time salary I was a mortgage broker and uh, I'd always have to tell the people how much down you gonna put and they'd figure that out and I'd figure out their letter to take and say how much they qualified for their loan but inevitably my paper wasn't enough they couldn't walk in there just with my piece of paper saying these people can get a loan for this amount of money <coughs> they had to have an actual check actual money that they could give the seller as a pledge that they were going to buy the home. Remember when you bought your home how you had to do that? Give them that check. Say here's my earnest money. That's really nothing more than a pledge that you're going to come through with the rest of the money. That's why they don't want just your check. They want the letter from the mortgage company saying you've already been pre-approved for the money. Because that pledge plus that letter says, okay, we can sell you this home because you can buy it. Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. I want you to think about that. 
Your salvation was accomplished when Christ died on the cross and was resurrected and you put your belief in it. The ministry of the Holy Spirit brought you to Christ, brought you to accept Christ, but a lot of the rest of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not required for you to go to heaven, is it? But it's required for you to live an effective life the way God wants you to according to His plan and purpose. God wants you to have a sense of guarantee that he's there for you in the future. And know what he's promised you for the future will take place. Go back to that illustration from my grandpa's attic of the feather bed. God has moved me when I accepted Christ away from the feather bed by the ministry of Him, the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, to be able to get on that memory phone bed. And it's solid wherever I am. It moves but comes back. It stays there but then adjusts if I go this way. You know, once you get on one of those, you don't want something else because it moves, it changes. Have you ever seen one of those beds where you know you, you, you get over on it and then in a sense it, it recognizes that there's this little gap between you and the bed in the middle where your back and your hips and your chest don't all together meet and it kind of comes up and says, we'll support you right here too. God the Holy Spirit is God's way of saying to us when He chose us in Christ to become His children as He adopts us and makes us His. The Holy Spirit is God's way of saying, I am so here for you that there'll never come a time in your life now or in the future when I bring it all to completion to where you'll not know I'm for you. God's grace is that powerful. Now remember the correct definition of grace according to Chuck Vance, which means it is the one to use. God's grace is God enabling me to have and to become that which I can't on my own. And so there'll never come a time in your life whether you're facing good times or tough times, difficult times or easy times, that God's grace is not there and the work of the Holy Spirit is not there to help you be able to do that which you can't do on your own and to have that which you can't get on your own. When I look at Dr. Stan, Dr. Stan, you remind me of grace. Some people if they went through what you've gone through, would just sit back at home in their recliner and say, I ain't going out. Not like this. Where I can't be like I've always been. I'm just going to quit. And you haven't. And I thank God for your testimony of the grace of God when I look over and see you there every Sunday. Amen. That's grace. God enabling Stan to be and to do what he can't do on his own regardless of the circumstances. What are you facing in life? 
I hope that as you face it, you're going to face it with the acknowledgement of God's grace. God the Father set it into plan in the past. God the Son went to work and put together the provision of all that would be necessary for it to take place. And God the Spirit is there with you as God's guarantee or His pledge that His grace will be sufficient. Whatever you need to do or to be what you need, He will enable you to be there for that. Even if it means accepting something you don't want to accept. That is part of the work of grace. Sometimes we have to accept things we don't want to accept. But God's grace is there even for those things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your greatness and most of all for Jesus who is the example of examples of your grace. And We thank you, Father, for what you did in choosing and planning to send your Son to be our Savior and Lord. And we thank you, Jesus, for being obedient to the Father and putting the plan into action. And we thank you, Lord, for giving the Holy Spirit to enable the plan, the purpose and meaning of God in life and the future to always be ready to be fulfilled and to make sure that grace is the constant maintaining factor of our existence as your children. We thank you, Lord, and we ask you to bless us, for it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.